The little girl was suddenly awoken from her slumbers at the Chibok Secondary School in Kenya by the sound of shouting. She was awoken very suddenly from her sleep, and she looked up through misty eyes at the figure of a shadowed man standing at the foot of her bed with a gun in his hand, and he spat out at her, you come with me. Along with some 274 other young girls and women, she was herded out of the dormitory and into some waiting trucks and then sped off to some location we have not yet discovered. But this little girl is not among those who has ever been found. Our supposition is that she, like many others, was taken off to serve as a sex slave or a labor slave for Boko Haram and only because she was a Christian. On another continent, in the forests of eastern India, in the Dantowada province, a follower of Jesus Christ by the name of Brother Sadavir was sharing his vibrant faith with others, members of the Koya tribe. His Conviction, his love for Christ, was so winsome and incandescent that many began to turn towards the God of the Scriptures. They left behind their Hindu tradition and became followers of Jesus themselves. In time, 72 individuals were now meeting in Sadavir's home for worship every week and to study God's Word and to pray and to support one another. On one recent morning, however, Sadavir went to answer the knock at his door and opened the door and looked outside to behold a mob scene of some 200 of his neighbors. They dragged him outside of his home. They tied him to a tree. They took bamboo sticks and began beating and flaying him until the flesh literally hung from his bones And then they drove a three-pronged pitchfork through his chest and branded him with the symbol of their religion and ended his life here. When the masked men of Somalia's Al-Shabaab sect stormed into Kenya's Garissa University College in recent days, nobody knew why they were there. And then as they rounded people up and began asking them, what their religious beliefs were, whether they were Muslim or Christian or something else, it became clear what their objective was. 148 individuals confessed that they were followers of Jesus, and Al-Shabaab summarily massacred them. Their faith, lasting to the last moments, they died in a bloody massacre in that school. In far-off Libya, a branch of ISIS similarly slaughtered some 30 Christ followers from the nation of Ethiopia quite recently. It was a follow-up to a similar uh, attack that led to the deaths, the beheadings of some 21 Egyptian Christians a short time before. In Uzbekistan, Just a month ago now, a man named Abdurrahim was arrested. He was fined an entire week's wages. He was put into jail for 10 days for the simple crime of having been found reading the Bible in a rehab clinic to addicts 
and alcoholics. In Pakistan two weeks ago, a 13-year-old boy by the name of Nauman was approached by two men who asked him his religion, and he answered, I'm a follower of Jesus, whereupon they doused him with gasoline and set him on fire. A few days ago in Uganda, the 17-year-old daughter of a Christian pastor was taken aside by five men and brutally gang-raped as punishment for the fact that her father, the pastor, refused to close down his church. Now, I tell you these particular stories not to shock you, not to upset you, but to alert you to a reality that in spite of the recent momentary media attention that this theme has been given is covered nowhere near enough uh, given the, the size, the magnitude of this particular issue. We hear, of course, periodically from our networks and magazines of the violence being done against Christians. As our news media today swirls with, with the story of racial injustice and conflict in our own culture and the uh, latest uh, tragedy of a natural disaster, uh, it is easy to forget that we live in a world where there is an injustice and pain on a far larger scale sweeping our world and has been sweeping it for many decades now. According to the Pew Research Center, 75% of the population of the world lives in areas where extreme or severe religious persecution is the norm. 75%. And the vast majority of those individuals who are being persecuted are our brothers and sisters. They are people that we will meet one day at the great banquet. There will be individuals who will look into our eyes, perhaps, and said, did you know our story? Did it move your heart? Were you struck in any way with a sense that you might move in our direction to offer any kind of aid in the way that, that ultimately you would want it offered if the roles had been reversed. We will meet individuals, Christian brothers and sisters, who were pleading for our help. The U.S. State Department now identifies some 60 countries on our planet where Christians are facing significant persecution. The top 10 nations where persecution is extreme will not surprise you as you survey that particular list. They're frequently in the news today, though not always for this particular issue. The next 15 nations on the list are places where persecution is severe. I mean severe enough that we would be rioting in the streets if it was going on here in our country. That is, if we were not too afraid for our lives to even come out of our homes, as many of these believers are. According to World Watch Research, uh, that's an academic institute that follows trends in uh, global religious conflict, there are two main forms that persecution takes. The first of those forms is called squeezing. By this I mean uh, a public ridicule of Christians is common. Uh, constraining their right to meet or to speak is the norm. Boycotting them, 
paying them less just because they are Christians, finding, firing them from employment if you find out they are followers of Jesus, or denying uh, to these believers opportunities that are widely open to everyone else. This is going on in so many of these countries today. I met a pastor from Belarus just last week who said this kind of experience is the norm for the people of his congregation. The second form of persecution is called smashing, and it involves exactly what it sounds like, violence against the bodies of believers. These are the tales that we read of the beatings and the torture and the sexual assault and the shootings and the enslavement and the dismembering and the, uh, the beheadings of, of believers that have now become front-page news, at least for the moment, but are occurring on a vastly more widespread basis than you'll ever hear from the contemporary news media. Do you know that every single month, 322 of your brothers and sisters are slaughtered for their faith? Every month, 214 churches or the homes of believers are burned out uh, simply because of their faith. Every month, 722 acts of violence are committed against your Christian family. Why is this? Why is this happening? Well, on one level, some of it has to do with the fact that Christianity is so closely identified with America, and America is not universally loved in every culture of our world today, and this brings on some of it. But it's not the main theme. At the risk of sounding melodramatic, uh, I believe that underlying so much of this persecution is this simple fact. Satan hates the church. The great enemy of God hates the family of God. And and as the book of Revelation reminds us, behind so many of the events of our history is this great struggle between the good and gracious restorative work of God and the work of an enemy that wants to tear down anything that would bear the image of God and bring hope and flourishing to this world. This intelligent evil is way too crafty to be obvious. He's not going to show up in a red suit with a pitchfork, although he did in Sadavir's case with a pitchfork. But normally he's not going to show up with horns in this obvious way. He prefers instead to simply fan the flames of human passions, selfishness, insecurity, bitterness into wildfires that do the damage that he needs to see done. In principle, there are three major impulses through which he moves today, I believe. Those flames spread through, first of all, tribalism. Persecution today is a rising greatly out of the reality of tribalism. And by that I mean the belief that is so prevalent in ethnic conflicts, religious conflicts, political conflicts in our time, even in school conflicts, I suppose, that our kind is really the only good kind and that others are a threat that must be fought against, suppressed, or done away with. Tribalism is one of the major sources of persecution. A second form of 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 impulse driving persecution today is secularism. By that, simply I mean the conviction that's alive in communism and a lot of college campuses today that until religion is dead, 
Until the God of the Bible is wiped out, human beings can't truly thrive. It's only when God is out of the picture that all will be well for human civilization. And then persecution grows also in the soil of authoritarianism. And that is simply the belief that we can build a better world through command and control. In other words, things will be better when I am king and I can command things and I can control things. This is what authoritarianism uh, is all about. The God we meet in Jesus begs to differ on all of those theories, of course. And this is the heart of the gospel message in many ways, is that God sees things, uh, the pathway to life, in very different terms. Contrary to the spirit of tribalism, God says, I love people of every tongue and every tribe. In fact, I even love people of every faith, and I have given my life for them upon the cross. This is the message of our God. Contrary to the idol of secularism, God says that it will only be by acknowledging my existence and bonding yourself to me and my character that human life will ever be able to flourish. And contrary to the impulse of authoritarianism, God says it is never through command and control that that humans prosper. It is through serving and love that the power for human flourishing is ultimately unleashed. In other words, it's not going to be through the squeezers and the smashers that history is ultimately defined and human progress moves forward. Blessed are the peacemakers, says God, for they will be called the children of God. In light of all that, I suppose the most pressing question that we could ask is how, in the meantime, should we respond? What can we do in our time to help these brothers and sisters in a place of such need? The Bible clearly calls us to do something. The Bible clearly asks us to respond in some way to the needs of that uh, little girl in Nigeria and those Somali Christians in Kenya and the pastor's family in India and Uganda and those believers in Pakistan and Uzbekistan. We aren't meant to just sit here Sunday after Sunday twiddling our thumbs and exhausting our energies over fighting the manger scene wars that we think constitute persecution. Clearly, we're meant to make a more wholehearted and appropriate kind of response. 21 centuries ago, the Apostle Paul was confronted with a similar kind of circumstance. His heart was broken by the persecution that was being endured by the church in Jerusalem in the first century. The local authorities, both religious and political, had decided they were going to wipe out the Nazarene sect. They, they were going around literally doing house-to-house searches in some instances, trying to root these people out. In many cases, they were imprisoning them. They were even beheading them. In other cases, they were simply squeezing them, boycotting them, firing them, uh, making life miserable for them. And the believers in Jerusalem were really struggling. They were even starving. And as a result, the Apostle Paul, moved at his, the depth of his soul about this need, sent out his special envoy, Titus, to take up a collection to to bring forth some aid from the churches in the wider empire who were not enduring this kind of pressure. 
Paul expected that the greatest form of support was going to come from the affluent churches in the major metropolitan areas. He was expecting the, the, the aid to come quickly from Philippi and from Ephesus and, and from Rome and from Corinth. But to Paul's absolute amazement, the real help came from the churches of Macedonia. And what was amazing about that was the churches of Macedonia were poor churches. They were, they were churches that were enduring themselves a certain amount of squeezing and and smashing. And yet Paul observes, they urgently pleaded with us for this privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. Titus had actually said to them, I think, we can read between the lines, hey, listen, you know, if you can do just a little bit, they said, no, no. They, they pleaded for the privilege of ministering to the brothers and sisters in such dire state of need. So my question for today is what would it look like to live with this Macedonian kind of faith in response to the persecuted church? What would that look like for you and me? As the writer of the Hebrews said, continue to remember those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. What does it look like? to respond to the persecuted church. Well, let me suggest, before I let you go today, a few possible answers to that question. And the first thing I would say to you is, please don't be surprised by persecution. Don't look at persecution as some evidence that God's hand is not upon history. For on the contrary, Jesus promised us this kind of persecution would come. Jesus once said, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The New Testament church found that to be true. They endured persecution. Many, many believers down through the course of of church and human history have experienced similar kinds of pressures. And if you and I have largely escaped it so far, and frankly we have, frankly we have, that we can't pray openly in our schools, that we can't um, put our manger scenes out where we want to in the public square. This is the mildest form of squeezing. And if we've not experienced a, a more severe form of squeezing and smashing, we should thank God for the grace of that. But also, we should be not naive and recognize that day may come for us. And we should take seriously these themes as they develop around the world. If you wear the uniform of Jesus Christ. You're in a great battle and you will be shot at. You will enter the fray. Secondly, we ought to pray for our brothers and sisters who are under attack. We ought to pray for them faithfully. Around your dinner tables, in your morning devotions, remember the persecuted church in prayer. This is the number one thing, the number one request we hear from our mission partners around the world from Christians under assault. Remarkably, they don't say to us, uh, please pray that we'll be delivered from all evil. Please pray that, that, that we will never have to suffer any kind of pain or hardship. The requests that come to us from them are more like this. Please pray for us that we will remain faithful and not give up our witness in the face of these pressures. 
pray for the persecuted church. Thirdly, if you want to help your brothers and sisters, then advocate for the cause of persecuted Christians with our government. Write your congresspeople. Urge them to act on behalf of oppressed Christians around the world. Ask them to exert whatever pressure they can on unjust governments to root out and stop so much of this bloodshed and heartache. We live in a world where the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Get squeaky. Plead for the church in every way that you can. Fourthly, I want to encourage you to give to the mission fund of Christ Church of Oak Brook. We have relationships with 60 mission partners in many of the most oppressed countries across the globe. We hear regularly from these brothers and sisters about their specific needs. And and if you want to help persecuted Christians, then support this incredible channel of blessing and support that is available to you. Every gift to that mission fund has a direct impact on their welfare, and every gift helps. Fifthly, write a letter of encouragement to a persecuted Christian. Go home today. Sit down and just write out a note. Dear brother or sister, I, I don't know your name. I can't imagine what you are enduring right now. But I want you to know that I care. You are not forgotten. And I'm going to be praying for you. I'm going to be remembering you. And you sign your name and drop it off at our mission department or send it to our mission part, department. And we'll find a way of getting these letters into the hands of mission partners who can translate it into the native tongues of the people that they're meeting, and your encouragement will make a profound difference. Sixthly, if you want to help the persecuted church, recognize the fact that a major theme of persecution today has to do with the conflict between Islam and Christianity. And if you want to be a creative influence in the midst of that particular conflict, here's what we need to do. Make a relationship of love and care with a Muslim neighbor here in these United States. Many people have spoken to me over the weeks and months previous to this expressing concern about the rise of Islam in our culture. We've read books about the Islamization of Europe. We feel that we are next. Let me tell you what the reality is. 0.6% of Americans are Muslims. 0.6%. This is an isolated people. Isolated people are vulnerable people. Isolated people need loving friendships to meet them as Jesus met the Samaritan and the Gentiles and the people of other faiths in his day. And every time we build a relationship with a Muslim person, we decrease the likelihood of the radicalization of such a person. We increase the likelihood that these moderate Muslims will speak out against the terrible violence being done against Christians around the world, and we need them to speak out in that particular way. Build a loving relationship with a Muslim coworker or neighbor, and you can be part of a creative movement here in these United States. We're never going to diminish the violence of our time through physical force alone. 
There are times when physical force is required. But we need to fight the polarization that extremism is bringing about in our world, not so much by physical force, but by soul force. We have to be peacemakers in the way that Jesus was. It takes courage and risk and daring to do that. He models this for us on the cross itself. Because only by undercutting this extremism with an outreaching kind of love and a generosity of service and works of compassion and relationship building are we going to ultimately slow down or stop the kind of bloodshed we're seeing today. And if we don't get this, we don't get Jesus. And we don't get the persecuted church. Because these people are doing that. The Coptic Christians and the believers in many parts of the world are continuing to love even their enemies and those who persecute them. Do you know the number one request these believers make of us beyond prayer? They say to us, please send us resources so we can do a better job of loving and serving our neighbors. What can we learn from them? What can we learn from the persecuted church? Which brings me to the last observation and suggestion I want to make for today. If we want to encourage the persecuted church, then finally, let's commit to deeper discipleship ourselves. I want you to imagine that you're in one of those countries where there is extreme persecution. You are dealing with a pressure that makes your every day a terrifying experience. You have known people you loved and shared life with who've been brutally killed. You may have had your home taken away. You may be on the run yourself because of that. And, and, and you're daring to keep trusting God. You're daring to keep sharing your faith in the midst of these incredible circumstances. And you look across the big pond at the American church. And, and you see... And you see a body of believers in the United States who, who, who don't know how to get along with each other. They, they can't seem to resolve their own church squabbles. Or, or, or this group of people are, are, are not even able to imagine how they could prioritize worship and reading the Bible and, and prayer over watching TV and Sunday sports and, and sleep. And you look across that pond to this, to this great church in America that you want to, to, to gain tips and pointers and help from, and you see a group of people who are not able to summon up the courage to challenge simple wrongs in their workplace or obvious ones in their, in their social environment or, or not even willing to share their faith with people across the street. Under the very best of circumstances, you see people not able to conceive how they could possibly give away more than just 2% of the greatest wealth in human history to meet the needs of others or advance the kingdom cause, not able to forgive people who simply hurt their feelings. How encouraged are you going to be by seeing a church like that? If you want to encourage the persecuted church, and I believe all of us do, here's the simplest idea. Let's show them what disciples can do and what the church can be in a land of full freedom. 
Please pray with me. Lord God, you have said to us that blessed are we when we are persecuted because of righteousness for your name's sake. We're just, we're just beginning to understand how and why that might be so. But when we look into the eyes of those faithful brothers and sisters who stay true to you under the most extreme and severe of pressure, we are humbled by their witness. We ask, Lord, for the power of your Holy Spirit to live more fully into our own faith and discipleship and to be faithful, Lord God, in doing what we can to let these brothers and sisters know that they are not forgotten. So move in us, we pray, In the name of Jesus, amen.